Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to a Big Heads Media podcast. Tonight is True Crime Night number two as we discuss a bizarre kidnapping and some vigilante justice. It's Chowsilla, California and Skidmore, Missouri. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Here we are for episode five of season two of Small Town Secrets. And just like uh, episode five of season one, we're going to do another true crime night. So both of the main segments are going to be some true crime stories that I've wanted to cover for a little bit. And I can tell hopefully tonight is not going to be uh, annoying as an annoying of a night as it seems because I have this, I already have this tiny bug that wants nothing more than to just bask in the glow of my 4K monitor. I think he finally went away. Or maybe I smushed him. I don't know. But hopefully he's out of the way. And the cat stays quiet. And everything will fall into place like it usually does. Tonight we're going to dig into two towns. Two cases. Uh, both of very different very different stories though. Uh, so far, like the theme on True Crime Night is that it's just too, true crime. I don't try to go any, any deeper on the theme than that. First up, we're going to talk about uh, Chowsilla, California, and the bizarre bus kidnapping that happened there. And I want to give a shout out to the Our Strange Skies podcast. The only reason I know about this story is because I don't remember which episode it is. I'll have to ask him maybe and dig it up. It's an older one where he mentions this story at the very beginning of his show before he jumps into his UFO stuff. And I always thought that was a really interesting story and I wanted to dig up all the dirt on it and do it on this show as well so we have him to thank for that and then we're going to talk about Skidmore Missouri and Ken McElroy which 
has been making the rounds. There's a documentary that just came out about on Sundance, uh, which I was going to watch and maybe use for the show, but I didn't get all the episodes recorded, so I kind of just did some internet research on it and didn't really use the use the documentary but it's it's like a multiple part documentary it's very in-depth and wonderful and i'll i'll link to something in the show notes so people can find it it's called no one saw a thing it came out just recently this year like a month or so ago uh on the sun on sundance tv on the sundance channel but those are our two main stories and of course we have the local headlines and we have some listener stories to finish it up uh, not a whole lot of gr- show notes for this one. We're just going to kind of jump into it. Uh, but first, we have a promo from another Big Heads Media podcast. This one is the Into the Shift baseball podcast. So check it out and give them give them some support. I'll be back right after this. Stay up to date with the latest in Major League Baseball with the End of the Shift Baseball Podcast. Are you tired of the same old way baseball writers complain about the new changes in the game? Well, this is not the show for you. The End of the Shift Podcast with a modern take on what makes baseball great. And the ball will be hit into the shift. They get an out. It's only because of that shift. And they do. And that's why you follow the numbers. Join co-hosts Max Gross and Kyle McAravey for weekly updates every Sunday night. Or find us on Twitter at Into the Shift Pod. It's the Into the Shift Baseball Podcast. The bug is back. I can't get rid of it. It's going to haunt me the entire show. I can feel it. Uh, anyway, we have a couple of great true crime stories to talk about tonight, like I mentioned and before we dig in them, I just once again want to let everyone know about the deal we have going with Dirty Knee Soap Company. If you are looking for some great handmade, like real soap and other kind of products like lotions, they've got beard oil, they've got body lotion, they've got hand lotion, they've got body wash, all sorts of great stuff and great scents. If you head over to stscast.com and hit the support tab, you can be uh, directed right to their site. Uh, I will get credit for that if you do. And if you use SDS Cast uh, checkout, you get 10% off. And I also get credit for that. So that helps out the show and that gives you some great soap. So check them out. Uh, that is the Dirty Knees Soap Company. So all the great stuff is out of the way, all the rigmarole. Let's get in to tonight's first segment on Chowsilla, California. Chowsilla lies in Madeira County with a population of 18,270. Its name is derived from the Native American tribe known as the Trochilla, a Ute tribe. It is said that the name translates to murderers, which is a reference to the warlike nature of the tribe. Other than its interesting name, there's not much to be said about the little town, but in 1976, something did happen, something that put Chasilla on the map. It would be a hot day on July 25th, 1976, as Frank Edward Ray, known to many as just Ed, was driving a bus full of 26 students. Ed was a farmer and a bus driver for the Dairyland Elementary School. The children, who ranged from ages 5 to 15, were all attending summer classes, and they were returning from a field trip to the local pool. At around 4 p.m., Ed noticed a white van on the side of the road. Assuming, like many of us would, that the van was broke down, he stopped to help. When he stopped, three armed men hopped out of the van and surrounded the bus. The kidnappers commandeered the bus and drove it to the nearby Berenda Slaw, where they abandoned the bus. Then, all 26 children, as well as Ed Ray, were loaded, on, were loaded into another van and driven 11 hours north to Livermore, California, which is just outside of the Bay Area, and that's what I... I always love pointing out to people that like have never lived in California before, like Chowsilla is in SoCal, like it's, I can't remember exactly, but it's around like LA and San, you know, it's down in that part, San Bernardino, San Diego, all that stuff, it's kind of out there. And like, it, it sometimes I know like for people that live in smaller states, it's so hard to fathom, like they drove for 11 hours and we're still in California, like it took them 11 hours to get from SoCal, the NorCal. They probably still had a couple more hours of California left before you get to Oregon. So it's it's a bit of a drive, to say the least. 
Once they arrived in Livermore, the kidnappers entered a quarry on the west side of town. Once there, the hostages were led one by one down a ladder into a buried moving trailer. Before they went down, the kidnappers took their name and a piece of clothing. They then buried the rest of the trailer into the dirt. While Ed Ray and the kids were buried in the trailer, the kidnappers made a call to the Chowsilla Police Department, demanding a $5 million ransom. However, the lines at the Chowsilla PD were busy and they couldn't get through, presumably because 26 kids were missing and everyone was calling the police department trying to find out what was going on and probably the report of their kids missing. So what did they do? All three decided it was time to take a nap. While the kidnappers were off napping, Ray and the children were working on escape. The trailer had been supplied with food, water, and a bunch of old mattresses. Dousing themselves with some of the supplied water to fight off heat exhaustion, Ed and some of the older boys started stacking the mattresses. Soon they reached the top hatch of the trailer. I'm assuming this was the, the hatch, the top hatch is where they were led down from. Ed then discovered that it was weighed down with something heavy. Using a stick and some grunt work, Ed was able to push off the 100-pound industrial battery that lay on top of the hatch. 16 hours after they were taken, Ed and all 26 kids escaped pretty much unharmed. Fred Woods, Richard Schoenfield, and James Schoenfield awoke after their much-needed nap to the news that all of their hostages had escaped and their plans were foiled. All three came from well-to-do families and had never been in trouble with the law before. Fred's father was the owner of the quarry, and the Schoenfield brothers were the sons of a wealthy podiatrist out of Menlo Park, which is where Facebook is at, if you need some sort of reference for that. The kidnapping idea started as a screenplay about the perfect crime. However, after losing 30 grand on a housing deal, the perfect crime started to sound like a good idea. It took less than a week to apprehend all three. Fred Woods would be found hiding out in Vancouver, British Columbia, up in Canada. All three got life in prison. Richard was paroled in 2012. His brother James was paroled in 2015. And despite many attempts at parole, mastermind Frederick Woods remains in prison. As for Ed Ray, the bus driver, he received a citation for outstanding community service from the California School Employees Association. February 26th, which is his birthday, has been marked Edward Ray Day in Chowsilla. He would pass away on May 2012. All the children survived the kidnapping and were physically unharmed. However, many would go on to have nightmares of the event and other trauma well into adulthood. And that is, it's short and sweet, but it's such a bizarre kidnapping. Like, I guess it's grandiose for, I mean, if you're gonna, if you're gonna grab 26 people, that's a good way to do it is just grab a whole bus um, you know, and so when I started looking at this, it was really interesting because I did not realize that they drove all the way up to Livermore, California, like, and there's a weird synchronicity there, we'll get into that later into the show, and I always thought everything just happened in Chasilla, and they buried, you know, it was very quick, but, I don't know, I wonder where they got, it just, it makes me wonder, like, what, how did they... How do they get to, like, how do they arrive? Like, we're going to go to Chasilla and grab a bus of people. I get it. You wanted it. It makes sense to go. Oh, we'll have to get these guys from far away. That way it will put suspicion off of us. I don't know. Maybe they just drove until they ran out of gas or something. And we're like, all right, we're here. First bus we see, we'll go for it. That's what I've always wondered when I started researching this was where did that all that come from? Like, why that town? Was there a reason for it? wasn't random they just figured hey we're we'll just drive far enough away from livermore that they, it'll take them forever to pin it on us and we'll be five million dollars richer by the time this is all over but it didn't happen that way and you know just kudos for the kids and for ed being able to get to macgyver to a team their way out of that situation and and the kidnappers took a nap they took a nap and they woke up in the news to the news that just everyone had gotten out and their shit had hit the fan. It's it's a great story and I I know that I'm glad that, you know everyone made it out alive and I, there was, I'm sure there was some baggage to deal with, but you know they were lucky and they persevered and they got through it and that's the story of the bizarre bus, bus kidnapping from Chasilla, California. 
So we're going to listen to the boom as we always do, and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Skidmore, Missouri, and Ken Rex McElroy and what happened to him. So don't go anywhere. This is a podcast, not a radio show. You're not going anywhere. Be right back. And next we're going to talk about Skidmore, Missouri and Ken McElroy. And I know this has been around. It's been on some other shows. Like I said, there's a documentary about it. A book's been written about it. Uh, There's been a movie made about it. There's been a Walker, Texas Ranger that I believe was based off of it. But uh, the show's called Small Town Secrets, and this is a small town with a secret. So that's why I wanted to do it for this show. Skidmore is indeed a small town with a population of 284. The local St. Oswald Protestant's Episcopal Church is on the National Register of Historic Places. The town held a yearly pumpkin show, and it's pumpkin with an N and an apostrophe, not pumpkin, until 2004. It's not the pumpkin show or the historical church people whisper about when they talk about Skidmore. It's the shooting of former town bully Kenneth Rex McElroy. And as you will see, this story is the epitome of a small town secret. McElroy was born in 1934 to sharecroppers Tony and Mabel McElroy. He was the 15th of 16 children. He dropped out of school in the 5th grade and was mostly illiterate. Ken's early life was a tough one. As a young boy, he fell off a wagon. This resulted in a steel plate being put into his head. It was also said that when he was 18, a steel beam fell fell on him as he was working on a construction site. This caused him massive back pain and possible brain damage. Could these things have been a factor into how his adult life played out? I don't think anyone will ever really be sure. As he got older, his crimes grew more and more serious. He started off stealing things like liquor and antiques, and then moved on to livestock, such as cows and pigs. He made a living off of not just stealing, but leasing property he owned and raising dogs. He would go on to father 15 children by many different women. It was surmised that many of these children were a product of sexual abuse. He was a notorious womanizer and abuser. In fact, he would be indicted 21 times over the course of his years, and none of it would stick. His lawyer, Richard Jean McFadden, got him off each time. Throughout his life, he would be married, I think three times, maybe four times, it depends on which thing you look up. His final wife was Trina McLeod, whom he abused and tormented constantly. Abuse she wanted to charge him for. However, when she was 14, he would marry her. Why? Because if she was his wife, she couldn't testify against him. He did this by bullying her parents into giving permission for the marriage, and then he divorced his previous wife to marry her. When Trina was 14, she became pregnant with McElroy's child. After giving birth, she fled with the baby back to her parents' house. Because of this, McElroy tracked her down and brought her back to his home. He would then later shoot her parents' dog and then proceed to burn down their house. Trina and her family would later say it was faulty wiring that led to the fire. This in itself is a great example of why Ken McElroy's wrath lasted for almost two decades. His intimidation, coupled with his Teflon-like presence in the courtroom, left the whole town feeling like there was nothing they could do. That was until July of 1981. Sometime in 1980, one of McElroy's many children was caught taking a candy bar from the local grocery store. The store was owned by Ernest Bo Bowenkamp, who was 70 years old at the time. Upon hearing about this, McElroy became furious. He drove to the store and made threat after threat, such as offering Bo's wife Lois money to fistfight her. He would stalk and harass the couple for quite some time. Then, one night in July of 1980, Bo was out on the loading dock of his store waiting for an air conditioning repairman when Ken McElroy drove up in his pickup truck. He got out of the truck with a shotgun in hand and fired at Bo, hitting Bo in the neck. Bo would survive, and McElroy would be arrested for it. This time, however, McElroy went to court. There was a new prosecutor, and there's some, there is some, uh, some talk that he had bullied the original prosecutor into quitting, and they got had to get a new guy. The new guy was David Baird. Baird, unlike his predecessor, would finally win a conviction against McElroy. He did this by lowering the charge from attempt to kill to knownly cause serious physical injury. 
It was a lesser charge, but one that McElroy and his lawyer couldn't get around. Ken was found guilty and sentenced to two years, but he would be out on bail to await an appeal. This worried most of Skidmore. He was still out on the streets. In fact, he would be seen days later at the D&G bar brandishing an M1 Garand, complete with bayonets, threatening to kill Bowen Camp. On July 10, 1981, there was an impromptu meeting at the Skidmore Legion Hall, which was just down the street from the bar. The meeting was held by many townspeople and the county sheriff, Dan Estes. The townspeople wanted to know what they could do to protect themselves from McElroy, legally. Estes suggested forming a neighborhood watch. As the meeting went on, they got wind that McElroy had turned up at the D&G. The meeting dismissed and the sheriff left. Residents from the meeting crowded around the bar as McElroy was getting back in his truck with Trina in the passenger seat. Suddenly, shots rang out, hitting the truck. Trina jumped from the truck and was pulled to safety. McElroy was not so lucky. He had been struck twice by two different bullets a 22 caliber Magnum, and an 8mm Mauser. There were 40 to 60 witnesses to the shooting, however no one called an ambulance, and Ken Rex McElroy would succumb to his wounds. There were so many witnesses, however, to this day, no one has claimed to see who shot, and no charges have been filed against anyone. Only one man, Del Clement, who was part owner of the D&G bar, I'm assuming he's the D in D&G, was, ne- was uh, ever named as a suspect by Trina. Nothing ever came of this accusation, and Dell would go to his deathbed admitting to nothing. On July 9th of 1984, Trina would file a $6 million wrongful death suit against Skidmore. It would be settled out of court for the sum of $17,600. Trina would pass away on January 24th, 2012 from cancer. She was 55. And I often wonder about this uh, town meeting. It was, they said they got together to be like, hey, sheriff, what can we legally do to uh, take care of this guy? And the sheriff is like, well, you can form a neighborhood watch. And then all of a sudden some, I don't know, I imagine that some guy burst into the meeting hall and was like, he's down there, just down the block, you know. Probably didn't happen, but that's what I imagine. And... You know, but anyway, they got wind that he was down in the bar, like as they were having this meeting. And so, then the sheriff just kind of leaves. It's almost as if though, like, he could smell that some trouble was a brewing, and it was just kind of like, listen, everyone, you can form a neighborhood watch. That's a legal thing to do. But I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to leave now. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Plausible deniability. I don't know. I just, I just loved how he like left. I think if if you were a sheriff of a small town, you knew that trouble was a brewing. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to stick around after that meeting for a little bit? Uh, but yeah. And there's a lot of discussion as to you know how many of these allegations and all these things that McElroy did, like how much of it was true. You know, did he was he really that that bad of a person 21 indictments you know arrested like 52 times or something like that you know was was it really that or did this tiny town just have it out for him personally i think he probably was not the greatest guy and maybe maybe some of that was trumped up against him but i think mostly he uh he made that bed and he ended up lying in it and that's that's why i wanted to do on this show like i said it is the epitome of a small town secret it is a town that has 284 people. I think there were, back in 1981, there were, it was a little, there's like 300 people back then. But still, that's, that's tiny. I don't even know if that's a town. Would you, wouldn't you call that like a village? And, uh, you know, no one ever admitted, so many people saw this happen in broad daylight. Like, this didn't happen at night. You don't have, you don't have town meetings at night, I guess. This happened during the day. 40 to 60 people saw it happen, were there, and no one has ever admitted to seeing anything. And to this day, there's been no charges filed. There's been no investigation. There's been absolute buckus. And no one knows, and probably will never know, who shot Ken McElroy. Yeah, there were two bullets, so they say, hey, there were two people. There are some theories that there were more than two people. 
but we'll probably never know or get any any real answer or closure onto what actually happened that day in Skidmore, Missouri. And that is our main segment for the show. We're going to take a little musical break and come back and dig into some local headlines. And, of course, we've got some news to dig into, some local headlines to dig into for this episode. And this first one comes from Coast to Coast. This is written by Tim Banal. And it's a watch as fleet of UFOs caught on film. An odd piece of footage from North Carolina shows several mysterious balls of light silently hovering in the night sky. And some suspect that the weird sight could have been a fleet of UFOs. The intriguing footage was reportedly filmed by William Guy during a ferry ride across the Palmenco Sound last weekend. In the video, he first films a rather picturesque sunset unfolding over the water, then turns his camera to a cluster of 14 orbs in the sky and asks, what is that? The astonished observer goes on to note that we are in the middle of the ocean on a ferry and that there isn't any land nearby. Based on what can be heard by the chatter from the fellow passengers on the ferry, it would appear that Guy was not the only one who noticed the wondrous scene, as one person can be heard marveling that you only see that stuff on TV. In a comment on his YouTube page, Guy indicated the lights disappeared and then returned a few minutes later. As for what the anomalies could have been, some UFO enthusiasts have suggested that the footage shows a fleet of alien craft possibly making observations on the planet. A less fantastic possibility put forward by skeptical observers is that the lights were training flares being used for military exercises. With that in mind, what is your take on the puzzling footage? And there is a YouTube video on here, I'll link in the show notes, you can take a look at it. Uh, it could be flares, but it could be not. I don't know, I don't think he has where he says they came back a few minutes later. I don't think that's in the video. It would have been nice if he would have, you know, filmed when they came back too. That might have lent a little more credence to them maybe not being flares. But we just won't know, I suppose. And the next one is from, I got this from CNET. Uh, this is a mysterious fireball that crashed and burned. Wasn't a meteor by Eric Mack. Last week, flaming objects were spotted in the sky over the island of Chilo in southern Chile before reportedly crashing to the ground and starting a series of small fires. Resident Barnita Uida showed local Channel 2 news where something fell from the sky and burned some bushes on her property. Now, after a preliminary investigation, officials from Chile's National Service of Geology and Mining say 
they ruled out a disintegrating meteorite as the cause after failing to find any evidence of space rock at seven points where fires were started. So what are they dealing with here? Just some superheated space junk re-entering the atmosphere, or is someone testing their space lasers on Chile Chilean scrub? Technically, we're talking about unidentified flying objects. Yes, UFOs. Although nothing big or well-piloted enough to be reopened, the X-Files, for it would seem. After the story spread through social media last week, leading Chilean astronomer and astrophysicist Jose Meza told national broadcaster TVN the object was likely either a meteorite or space debris. With meteorites ruled out, that would seem to indicate it was a piece of old satellite or maybe a rocket booster that roasted bits of Chile. The geologists who investigated the scenes told TVN they're performing a more detailed analysis of soil samples and will release their conclusions in later October. This could mean geologists found bits of metal that might indicate human-made space junk started the fire, but they're double-checking to see what type of material they've found. It makes sense to ensure they haven't collected some other sort of metal or perhaps even a new element created by a far-off alien civilization that likes to announce itself by torching bushes. If that snark wasn't clear enough, it almost certainly isn't aliens. It's very rare for space debris to cause damage on the ground, as it usually falls in the ocean or remote areas. There have been occasional reports of rocket boosters doing damage falling in inland launches in China, but there are no reports of anyone ever being killed or seriously injured by space junk. And yeah, all snark aside, uh, there's always something stupid like that in one of these articles, right? I mean, you just don't know yet. Let them do their analysis and see what comes up. And our final story is from the McDowellNews.com, written by Mike Connolly, and it is Bigfoot 9-11 posts photos of strange figures at Lake James. Members of Bigfoot 9-11 said they've captured images of a Sasquatch-type creature along the shoreline of Lake James just after 1 a.m. Saturday, and the claim is getting statewide attention. John Bruner, I'm sorry, Bruner, founder of the Bigfoot 911 said he and three other members have used a boat Friday night and past midnight on Saturday to scout some locations for future expeditions. They were on the Linville side of Lake James. We were actually just scouting for new locations for searching Bigfoot, he said to the McDowell News. The only gear we had were night vision cameras. Bruner said he had previously heard from witnesses who reported a howling sounds on the Linville side of the lake, so Bigfoot 911 thought it was worth checking out. All of our research has been on the Catawaba side, he added. The Bigfoot 911 members found a cove on the Linville side. When they got to the mouth of the cove, they turned their boat's motor off and let it float. We immediately heard movement on both sides of the cove, said Bruner. Then we started hearing wood knocks. Bruner and the other two had night vision cameras and started scanning the shoreline. I immediately locked onto this creature and watched it for five minutes, he said. The creature was swaying from left to right and Bruner took 121 pictures of it. The Bigfoot 911 members were all about 50 yards away from the shoreline. Bruner said he estimated the creature to stand seven and a half feet tall. The whole time I was watching this thing, we could hear tree knocks, and this figure that I saw was not doing the one, was not one doing the knocking. He said there had to have been three, three of them at least. After about five minutes, the creatures walked away. But the four members of Bigfoot 911 continued to hear tree knocks and whistling sounds for another 45 minutes coming from the dark woods along the lake. Bruner said that Bigfoot 911 intends to go back to that spot and do a three-day expedition and gather more evidence. The area where we saw this five-mile walk from Patty's Creek Campground, he said, the easiest way to get there is by boat. Bruner said that the others did not feel like they were in any danger during this incident. Those things just want to be left alone, he said. The photos captured by Bruner were posted on Bigfoot 911's Facebook page. I blew it up on my tablet and then studied the pics under an old school magnifying glass, wrote G.L. Johnson on Facebook. Definitely a creature there. And in this pic, you can see not only a very faint outline of a face, but also of a second creature leaning out from the right from behind a tree. In my opinion, it's the real deal. It's no shadows. Another person was not so sure. I think it's just where there was no foliage or trees, kind of like a trail or opening of some sort wrote Christy Donson. So far, the Charlotte Observer, WBTV, and other media outlets across the state have reported the sighting. And there's a couple pictures on this website of them. It only shows, I think, two. What's the other picture? And I don't know. I mean, you can make out a head and stuff. But yeah, it also could be foliage. But I don't know. It would be nice to see some of the other... I would like to see the other 119 pictures. But their, their Facebook 
appears to be a closed group. I might I might ask to join it and see what's see what's going on there and take a look at some of the other pictures. But that has been this week's local headlines. After the boom, we have a couple of listener stories, and then we're going to finish out this show and get ready for the next one. So the two listener stories that we have tonight have some fun synchronicities to them that I'll get into as we go on. The first one is from the Kanukanomicon podcast, and they told me about uh, a local legend from their small town, and then I tried to Google it, because usually if you you Google enough, you can find some little blog post about just about every urban legend of every small town. But I couldn't find this one. But I did find a recent news story that mirrors the legend that he told me about. So what I did was I kind of took what he gave me, the bits and pieces of the story he remembered, and tweets. And I kind of put these tweets together to make a little paragraph here. And this is is what Kanukanamakan told me. Whispering Waters Creek in Stony Plain, and this is in Alberta, Canada where I grew up, has a bit of an urban legend associated with it involving a drowned kid, as small-town creeks do. From what I can recall, it was more of a schoolyard story, some, something some kid came up with to explain why it was called Whispering Waters. The story that went around the schoolyard was basically someone died in the creek, and if you listened carefully, you could hear them whispering. Spooky old ghost story. And so then I looked up, tried to find that, and I found... This local news story, it happened back in 2001, and this was up, updated in 2018. This is from the Globe and Mail in Canada. This is written by Jill Mahoney, and it's The accidental death of picked-on teen steers peers' remorse. Desperate to fit in, Giles morale was a bully's dream. The short, scrawny 16-year-old was easy to push around, throwing lockers and dumping garbage cans. And best of all, he would never tell. But since he was found dead, face down in a tiny creek earlier this week, teens in Stony Plain have been wishing they had treated him better. I even bullied him around a bit too, and feel kind of bad for doing that now, said 15-year-old Sterling Burroughs, who was briefly buddies with Mr. Morale last summer. Mr. Burroughs, who placed fresh cigarettes yesterday on a mound of flowers marking the spot where Mr. Moreau died, said that she had tossed him around like a little doll because of his appearance and small size. Though Mr. Morale's mother, Elaine, said she had received anonymous phone calls suggesting her son was not alone when he died, RCMP in Stony Plain, community of 8,300, about 35 kilometers west of Edmonton, concluded yesterday that the death was non-criminal. The boy, who had been drinking with friends Saturday night, was last seen walking away from an elementary school near where he was discovered early Sunday morning by Charlotte Fraser as she walked her dog. Investigators who found a single set of footprints in the grass leading to Mr. Morale's body believe he may have slipped and passed out while trying to step over Whispering Waters Creek, which is just 30 centimeters wide and 30 centimeters deep at that location. Mr. Morale's family refused comment yesterday, but blamed his tormentors in a statement released before the police announced that foul play was not involved. In our son's attempt to be accepted and fit in, he allowed himself to be used as a court gesture by fellow peers, sadly resulting in his death, the family said, pleading for an end to bullying. And on Monday, Mrs. Morale said, There's no way in my heart I believe he stumbled and fell into that tiny little wee creek. She said her son always refused to report his harassers. Just five foot two, skinny and self-conscious, Mr. Morale resembled Harry Potter, the character in the popular children's novels. Though he was bright, the grade 11 student attended some special classes at Memorial Composite High School for help with concentration and social skills. Despite the soul-crushing regular ridicule he endured, he did a fair bit of picking on people too. The difference was that the people he harassed fought back and always won. It was kind of rowdy. He was a little guy that always picked on the bigger kids and and always got himself in trouble that way, said 16-year-old Katie Edwards, who was in the social studies class, in his social studies class. Mr. Morale was often stuffed into filthy garbage cans and lockers, sometimes remaining confined for a couple of hours. He was always wha- he was also whacked on the backside with canoe paddles and belts. So it's a sad story. It's a sad tale of bullying and an accidental death, maybe. But it was just weird how the story, this modern story, reflected 
the schoolyard story that the urban legend that had popped up to just explain the why this place was called what it was called and it mirrored it in such great detail and the last story for listener stories and the last thing we're going to talk about is from Tyler Nelson over in Livermore, California. And if you remember, we just talked about Livermore, California. That's where the Chasilla bus kidnapping ended. And that's not the synchronicity. It is, but it's not the only one. So right before I started researching these uh, cases for the show, someone popped up on Twitter and said, hey, I think, you know, I just got done listening to the Hayward uh, Hayward and San Leandro episode, and I think I, I used to eat of that in and out that you were talking about all the time. So I, I found it on Google Maps, and I sent him a screenshot, and I'm like, this one? He's like, yep, that's the one. And then later, like the next day or something, I was trying to track down a book, something I'll, I might get into later. And I, all I had were like a picture of the page, a partial picture of a page, and I was trying to find out what this book was. And he helped, he didn't help, he actually found the book. He was like, hey, I did something, I found it, here it is. And then later, you know, I'm researching the, the bus kidnapping, I'm like, oh wow, this this actually, a lot of this took place in, Liver, in Livermore, California. So I messaged him, and I'm like, haha, I'm researching the story, and it takes place in Livermore, and you know, we kind of tracked it down on Google Maps where the the bus, where the the van, not the van, the trailer had been buried, and he went out there and he grabbed a picture or two of what that place looks like now. So I'm probably going to post that picture uh, on Instagram and Twitter and all that great stuff when this episode goes out, so everyone can take a look. But but Taylor has been has been quite helpful in the past week or so, and he sent me. He wanted me to let everyone know about the local cursed Livermore totem pole. And I found a little article from Weird California. I don't see an author on this. Looks like it's an older website. But here's a little little bit about the curse of the Livermore totem pole. The sewer system of the town of Livermore is cursed. And it's all due to their treatment of a totem pole made by Adam Norwald that is standing in Centennial Park on the northeast corner of Forth and Holmes. Adam forced an eagle Norwal, a hereditary member of the Ojibwa nation, originally carved the totem pole for a shopping center, but when they refused to pay him, he donated to the city for their 100-year anniversary in 1969. The totem pole is symbolic of 100 years of Livermore history, representing 1869 to 1969. Carvings on the totem pole depict the founder of the city, Robert Livermore. Atomic energy is also depicted in the totem pole. Each ring represents 10 years. The pole is 18 feet tall and was dedicated on May 18, 1974. However, at the time of its installation, city workers chopped off a few feet from the bottom of the totem pole. It is unclear why they did so, but Norwalk considered the act to have been desecration of the sacred object he had built. He showed up before city council and demanded that they restore the totem pole back to its original height. His demands fell on deaf ears, and the city council refused to restore the pole, so Norwal cursed the city's sewer system. And two weeks later, the entire sewer system backed up. Livermore did eventually restore the totem pole to its original height, but they never issued an apology to Norwal, and thus, Norwal never lifted the curse of the town. The curse has showed up in other ways, too. In 1969, the Centennial Time Capsule was buried in the park, thus the name Centennial Park. But when it was time to unearth the capsule in 1999, it was nowhere to be found. The missing time capsule was eventually discovered, hiding right under the cursed totem pole. More recently, death has been attributed to the cursed totem pole. A documentary was filmed about Livermore's history, and of course, what's Livermore's history without featuring the cursed totem pole? It was featured in the documentary, and not only was Nordwall interviewed, during which he reiterated that he had not lifted the curse, but also interviewed the former city manager and prominent city resident. Both the former city manager and prominent resident, according to the story, died a few weeks after the documentary was released. Victims of the curse or just coincidence? Adam Fortune Eagle Nordwall was also very involved in a variety of Native American protests. For example, he was the chief architect of the Native American occupation of Alcatraz Island from 1969 until 1971. 
1973, he discovered Italy. He showed up in Italy in full tribal regalia and announced the name of the American Indian people that was taking possession of Italy by right of discovery, just like Christopher Columbus had done. And there's a plaque on the totem pole, and this is what it reads. The totem pole carved by Adam Norrod, a dedicated American Indian, is symbolic of the 100-year history of the city of Livermore, 1869 to 1969. The carvings depict Robert Livermore, founder and protector of the village, the city's contribution towards harnessing atomic energy for peaceful purposes, with each ring represents 10 years of Livermore history. Dedicated to the people of Livermore, May 18th, 1974. And I think it's, I, I always wondered like, so a lot of people will know, you always hear that expression, you know, the top of the totem pole or whatever, but it's actually the the ones that are on the bottom of the totem pole are supposed to be more important uh, because I guess it's like they hold up everything else. So actually by chopping off those three feet, did, did, did the, you know, did, did they destroy the, the, the real foundation, the real meaning of that totem pole. But that's what he told me about. That's what he sent me. And he has kind of inadvertently, I think kind of become my, my, my uh, West Coast correspondent almost. So, thanks for the story, Taylor, and I hope your sewage isn't backed up, and I hope you have power and you weren't one of the people that are being uh, forcibly cut off from power from PGE out there. But that has been this week's Listener Stories and this week's show. Once again, I would like to thank everyone for listening and supporting and just being here for the show. It's been great. If you have a listener story that you would like to let me know about, a small town secret to let me know about, there are a ton of ways to get it to me. I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, Twitter and Facebook is at STScast. Instagram is STScast.gram. So you can hit me up on social media. Give me a follow. Give me a like. You know, you got a story. You can send it to me there. You can go to Reddit. I have a subreddit there, uh, RSTS Listener Stories. So if you want to get on there and, you know, let your put your story on there for us to take a look at and discuss and put it on the show, we can do it that way too. You can also visit stscast.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the main page. There is an email form there that you can fill out and send me uh, your story that way. There's a ton of other stuff on the website as well, such as all of the links and sources for this episode and all the other episodes, as well as pictures of what we've talked about. There is ways to support the show, such as the Dirty Me Soap Company link. There is a link for merch on the show, so if you want to grab a t-shirt or a coffee mug, which I have right here with some apple juice in it, you can do that. There are also links to pretty much everything for the show. All the social media stuff at the bottom of the page, there are links for, like I said, social media, for iTunes and Spotify and Reddit, and all that stuff is at the bottom. It's it's the website. It's the hub for the show. You can find out everything you need to find out. Uh, a great free way to support the show is just tell somebody. You know, go, hey, I've great found this great new show. You should check it out. Word of mouth, word of mouth does does wonders, and just leave me uh, a rate, you know, and review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. All of that helps out the show. All of it gets out to more people. It's been a blast, and we are halfway through season two already. And uh, yep, we're gonna have a big season finale. I think this this uh this time around, maybe three episodes. But so we've got, you know, that's coming up pretty quick, but that's all we got for right now. So until next time, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours?
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.